Good morning, everyone. So great to see you and to be with you this morning. I have to say it is weird to see my wife here in the front. Uh, I'm going to have to erase all of my marriage illustrations <laughs> for this sermon. <laughs> if you would, please open your Bible to Romans 1. Romans chapter 1. Today we are going to close out this chapter looking at verses 28 to 32. And as you turn there, I would like to begin with a word of prayer. Father, we come to You in the name of Your Son, Jesus. With hearts of thanksgiving. Ready to hear Your Word. Overflowing with joy. And at the same time, maybe some of us with cares and anxieties and worries as the week ahead and the week behind us is, is heavy upon us and all the responsibilities and all of the things that have to get done in life, we ask that You would help us to lay aside every worldly care now. And that You would give us understanding and that You would be mightily present with us this morning to take Your Word and apply it to each of our hearts, to understand it, to live it, to share it with others. And we ask, Father, that You would add to Your church this morning those who are being saved, even through the preaching of a text such as this. May you alone be glorified and exalted today. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. I was chatting with a friend from Pennsylvania this past week. Uh, he leads a small Bible study at his church. And I was sharing with him what I have been preaching through in Romans and what I would be preaching on today, which is still the theme of God's wrath and the doctrine of sin. And he shared with me something that was quite disturbing. That in his church, in his small group, when this doctrine is studied, when sin comes up, that the people in his group seem to push back. They act as if the problem, he said, is the influence of the world or the influence of the devil. That the devil made me do it. The devil made me sin. That the reason people sin is some external influence which causes them to sin. And that people are the victim of some external influence. And this is called passing the buck. Uh, this is called blame shifting. Now, does the world tempt people and even Christians to sin? 
Yes. 1 John 2.15. Is there a demonic realm and a demonic influence that could tempt us to sin? Yes. Ephesians 6.12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Matthew 4. Satan tempted Jesus. Job. Satan tempted Jesus. Or uh, Job. There is a demonic realm. But these are not the reason that people sin. The ultimate reason people sin, the primary reason, is not external influences. It is internal. It is internal. Man sins because of what he is. And what man is, is described for us in this passage, perhaps better than any other passage. In Romans 1, verses 28 to 32. One of the least popular passages in the Bible, you will not find this in a bumper sticker. People do not like to hear this. But it's the truth. And we ought to accept all of God's truth. And so let's read Romans 1.28 to 32 together. The Word of God says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And so here in verse 28, we see God's third and final act of judicial abandonment. Last week we saw that God gives people over to sexual immorality and to homosexual immorality. And I remind you that when the Bible says that God gives people over, it is an active, uh, it's in the active sense that, that God actively removes his restraint, allowing people to get what they want, what they lust after in their hearts, and then to suffer the consequences For the sin. Well, here he says that not only does God give people over to sexual immorality and to homosexuality, but that he gives them over to a depraved mind. Look at verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Mind. There's a play on words here in the original language, as both the words uh, to see fit, as they, they did not see fit, and the word depraved, 
Both of these words come from the same root word, which means to test or to examine something or a person so as to determine the quality of that object or person. This word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in the context of metals that would be tested and they would be thrown away, tossed aside if found to be worthless. And so what Paul is saying here in this text, this is what's happening. That humanity has set itself over God to examine God in order to determine whether God is worthy enough to be retained in their thoughts and whether God is worth it to govern their lives. And Paul says that God flunked their test. That they determined that God is Worthless. And in the words of Job 21, verses 14 to 15, these are the godless. They say to God, Depart from us. We do not even desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what would we gain if we entreat him? Those are the ungodly. And notice again, in this text again, it isn't that God abandoned man first. It is man who rejected God. It is man who abandoned God. And so God is just and vindicated in responding in the same way and abandoning man. Man is at fault. Humanity is at fault. One commentator said this of this passage. Throughout this passage, man is represented as active, as seeing, as thinking, as doing. He is not represented as victimized, as taken captive against his will, as the dupe of evil influences outside of himself. And isn't that what much of secular psychology will say to you? You're not the problem. The problem is outside of you. And you're a victim of your upbringing. You're a victim of your surroundings. And you have simply made some bad decisions in life. And as we look at our culture, other people say, well, what's the solution? The solution is education. That if we educate people enough, all of these problems will just go away. And then religion comes in and it says to you, well, you just need to be more religious. You need to try harder. You need to polish the external. You need to try gooder, as my kids would say. Just try to be gooder. And then, and then comes Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, and he says to humanity, you're the problem. Man is the problem. That the heart of man is corrupt. It is a restless evil. And as one person put it, the heart of the problem is that the heart is the problem. And because this problem is internal, it is spiritual, it cannot be resolved through external man-made methods. It all comes down to this, saints, that man has abandoned God. Humanity has weighed God on the scales and found Him wanting. But unfortunately for humanity, you can't flunk the teacher, but the teacher can flunk you. 
And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying that since humanity found God to be worthless, God gave them over to a worthless mind. That's what a depraved mind is. A worthless mind. A mind that has no spiritual value. A mind that is corrupt. The word mind here, the best definition I found is this. The mind is the inner judicial court able to distinguish good and evil. God gave people over to a mind that can no longer adequately tell what is good and evil. This is a twisted mind that calls good evil and evil good because it has been darkened, because it has been severed from God, who is the fountain, the source of all knowledge and all understanding and all wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And to fear God, to revere God, you must retain God in your mind. But if you kick God out, you're separating yourself from true knowledge and true understanding. And you're left with a senseless, corrupt, useless mind. Now, saints, why does the culture say that we're foolish? Why does the world say that anyone who believes, truly believes that this is the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation, all of it is true, all of it is accurate, why is it that they say that whoever believes that is foolish? Because to our culture, insanity has become sanity. And so when they see someone who is truly sane, who has been redeemed, who has been reconciled to God, who has a renewed mind, who is living for God, to the world they look insane. Because they don't fit the mold. To them it is not normal. To them it is odd. Because we're not running their course of life. And there's a sense, believers, that if the world doesn't recognize in you something different and does not call you a fool, in a sense, and you never get any pushback, there's something wrong with your life. We ought to be distinguished. We ought to be noticed. We ought to be considered fools for Christ's sake. 1 Corinthians. I like to watch YouTube channels, Christian YouTube channels. And there's this one YouTube channel, this host, he'll pull clips from different shows and, and all of these things, and he'll examine them from a Christian worldview. And he took two clips from Bill Maher's show, Bill Maher is a, a professing atheist or agnostic, depending on the day that you ask him. He is the person uh, that is on TV and will tell people religion is worthless, all religions, to be fair, and that God is worthless, that God shouldn't be in the conversation. Well, this Christian YouTuber pulled two clips from Bill Maher, two different shows, not the same show, and in one show, Bill Maher says, this generation, according to some statistics, is the dumbest generation. 
His, his words. In another show, he says, this generation is the most atheistic generation. And the, the Christian YouTuber says, hmm, could there be a link between these two? This is what the Bible says happens when you get rid of God. You're left a fool. You're left senseless. You're left a moron, spiritually speaking. Well, how does this depraved mind manifest itself? Two ways in our text. First, a depraved mind will manifest itself in depraved living. It's simple. Depraved mind leads to depraved living. We see this in verse 28, the second half, all the way to the end of verse 31. Look at verse 28, the the last portion of it. Paul goes on. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And the verb here to do is in the present tense, which tells us that what Paul has in mind here is a lifestyle. This is how these people live. These are the sins and the things that mark out their lives. This is who they are. And that's important for us to understand because as we read through this list of sins, even as Christians, we will be convicted. Because even Christians will fall into these sins. And so let's remember the context of Romans. Paul is not talking about the saints who have been called out of the world and who have been forgiving, forgiven and made new in Christ and who have no condemnation in Christ. He's talking about the godless who live this way. This marks out their life. He gave them over to do those things which are not proper. Proper according to the standard of God. Not according to the standard of the world. Because many of these sins are very much proper to our culture. And they would even label some of these vices as strengths that a person might have. To do those things which are not proper in the sight of God. That is what Paul is saying. How you think will determine how you live. Your affections define your actions. And if God is not in your thoughts, you're going to live a godless life. You cannot be godly and or you cannot be godless and then live godly at the same time. A.W. Tozer once said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. When you think about God, what you think about is the most important thing about you. Why is that? Because who God is to you, how you understand God, will shape your worldview. It will shape how you view the world, and it will shape how you live in this world. And so if your view of God is distorted and twisted, your life is going to be distorted and twisted. And if your view of God is accurate and biblical, then it's going to lead to a godly life. And this is why theology is so important. 
This is why doctrine is so important, because theology, in a simple sense, is the study of God, who he is, what he is like, how does he save. We need to know God. And apart from the knowledge of God, one will be left to live a corrupt, ungodly life. One pastor said, religious indifference is followed by moral indifference. The Gentile, perverted by a wrong basic attitude, is possessed by destructive passions and overthrown by all kinds of vices, all kinds of evil thinking, all kinds of evil actions, such as we find in this list in verses 29 to 31. This is Paul's longest sin list in the Bible. 21 sins. 21 vices. And so I thought, for the next 21 Sundays, we would... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we'll go through these briefly. Most of them are self-explanatory. But before we look at this list, we need to understand a few things about what Paul is doing here. About this list. Okay, number one... This list is not exhaustive. Paul's not interested in listing every single possible conceivable sin. How do we know that? Because when we look at, for example, his list in Galatians 5, the deeds of the flesh, he mentions sins there that he doesn't mention here. And so what Paul is doing, he's giving us a broad view to describe the depth of corruption to which mankind has fallen. It's not an exhaustive list. Number two, Paul is not listing every sin that is present in the local church in Rome. He's not describing the sins in the church. He's describing the sins of humanity, of fallen, godless human beings, unbelievers. And third, Paul is not even saying that every unbeliever will practice and engage in every one of these sins. That's obvious. And neither is Paul interested in mentioning times in history when people seem to be better than at other points in history. Or, or he's not interested in mentioning degrees to which a person might sin. He's just giving here a broad view of what humanity is. And finally, Paul's not giving these in any particular order. Uh, theologians have tried to discern some kind of order and categories, and some have discerned a, uh, a split in this list of four, five, and then twelve sins. Uh, but most theologians agree that, that um, there is no particular order here. That this is just a random list. And so I like to call this list a chaotic catalog of crimes. It's a chaotic catalog of crimes. One commentator said, Sin tumbles over sin with dizzying speed. And the human desire to rebel against God seems to be the only unifying principle of this otherwise chaotic activity. In other words, the only thread that runs through this list is mankind's rebellion against God. 
the desire to fight back against God. Well, let's look at fallen humanity. Verse 29. Paul begins by saying, being filled with all unrighteousness. This verb, is, this is important, this verb, being filled, is a perfect tense verb in the Greek. The perfect indicates that this is a completed action with ongoing results. And so what Paul is saying is not that people are continually being filled in the sense that they have not yet been filled, but that they have already been fully and completely filled with sin. The ESV renders it this way, that they have been filled with all unrighteousness. What Paul is saying here is that sin has permeated every aspect and every crevice of a person's being. They're full to the brim with sin. Now, I took my son out this past Thursday for dessert, take turns with the kids. And uh, as he was eating his churro ice cream dessert, shared one churro with me. I was just watching him eat. There was a mariachi band playing, and he was listening to them, watching them. And throughout the week, this passage is in my, in my head, and I'm trying to, to think through here, what, what, what is Paul saying? What's Paul saying about humanity? And then I began to look at all the tables around me. It was busy. Families enjoying a meal, joking with one another, smiling. And I thought to myself, well, these people look like decent, nice people at the moment. They're not killing each other. They're not hanging off the chandeliers and acting wild, cursing each other out. And yet my text tells me they are evil. And then I understood what Paul is saying here. He is saying this is what people are. That if you could open the door of a person's heart, if it had a door, it would be jam-packed with iniquity. They are full to the brim with sin. And then I thought about the Pharisees. And I know they're Jews, and he's going to get to the Jews in chapter 2. But I thought about the Pharisees. And then I realized almost all of these sins in this list, in the Gospels, are attributed to the Pharisees. To the religious elite of the days of Christ, to those who were externally righteous, to those who were the moral standard of the day. And we realize this can be hidden very easily. Most of these sins can be hidden very easily. And that's what Paul is saying. And in Romans 2, we learned that just because you have a Bible and go to church, like the Jews, they had the Bible, they had the oracles of God, it does not mean you have a renewed heart. This is in man. 
This is what people are. And we need to understand this. They're filled, he says, with all unrighteousness. Not some, but all unrighteousness. And I think the word unrighteousness, which is the first word, is the umbrella under which every other sin falls. Because Paul mentioned the word unrighteousness in verse 18, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And 1 John 5.17, the apostle says that all unrighteousness is sin. And so everything falls under unrighteousness. Second word, he says, wicked, evil intent, evil motives. The gospel uses this word of the Pharisees, that they had evil motives when it came to their dealings with Christ. Third, greed. Uncle Scrooge. An insatiable lust to have more and more and more and to acquire more for yourself at the expense of other people. Not to acquire, to give, and to be generous, but simply because I must have more. Greed. And I remind you that in Colossians 3.5, Paul likened greed to idolatry. Because the thing for which you're greedy becomes your God. Lowercase g. And that's what you serve. And that's what you live for. And by the way, you don't have to be greedy only for money. You can be greedy for your time. Your energy. That you don't want to give. It's all for me. It's all mine. Number four, he says, evil. Obvious. Five, he says, full of envy. And the word full, again, reminds us the pervasive nature of sin. Envy is when you're resentful at someone else for their possessions, for their success, and you envy what they have. Uh, Social media, I think, has exacerbated this sin. As people sit in front of Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, whatever else, and they look at the people and all that they have and what they look like and where they go to vacation, and you begin to be jealous of that person. Full of envy. Next, he says, uh, Planned Parenthood. I mean, murder. Murder. Planned Parenthood. The taking of someone's life. And I remind us that in the Gospel, Jesus likened anger to murder. Because anger is the evil thought of the heart that precedes murder. So if you're angry with someone, Jesus would say, in your heart, you've already committed murder. Then he says strife, bitter conflict, bickering, deceit, craftiness, uh, being skilled in deception like the serpent who deceived Eve. Malice. Malice is the need to see others suffer. And joyful when they suffer. You just need to see people going through a hard time. And you rejoice in that. They are gossips. This is what they are, Paul says. 
Gossips, whisperers, uh, speaking behind closed doors, rumor-mongering, spreading fiction as fact. Slanderers. Verse 30. This is similar to gossip, but but more aggressive. Uh, This is when people attack someone's reputation through lies, more than anything. We see this a lot in politics. Haters of God. Obvious. Insolent. A violent with words. A person whose words are arrows. Who insults others boldly and doesn't care. And it's interesting, in 1 Timothy 1.13, Paul described himself in this way prior to knowing Christ when he persecuted the church. In 1 Timothy 1.13, he says that he was a violent aggressor. Same word. I was insolent. Arrogant. People who think they are more important than they really are. Look at me mentality. Look at me. Boastful. Letting other people know that you think of yourself more than you really are. Braggarts. Self-exalting. Self-absorbed. Superior to others. Conceited. Boastful. One of my teachers said this. He said a boastful person is the person who wakes up and looks himself in the mirror in the morning and begins to belt out the hymn, How Great Thou Art. Inventors of evil. Finding new ways to express your depraved mind. Every time they add a letter to the LGBT alphabet, you're inventing evil. It's an invention of how how much more can we sin? What, What new ways can we sin against God? Disobedient to parents. Not submitting to the authority at home. Children, youth, a mark of an unbeliever. Disobedient to parents. 18, verse 31. Without understanding, senseless or foolish. 19, untrustworthy. The Greek word is covenant-less. A person who does not keep his word. A person who has double-dealing behavior. 20, unloving. Heartless. Especially toward those of your own family. When you have a cold heart without affection toward your own family members. Heartless, unloving. And finally, unmerciful. Showing no mercy. Being unforgiving. These are ways in which the depraved mind manifests itself. And let me remind us, as as we look through these, as saints, we look through these through the lens of the Gospel. We have been forgiven of these sins. You will struggle with some of these sins. What's the difference between you and the unregenerate? When you sin in this way, you're convicted. You go to God. You confess. You find forgiveness. You get up. You keep going. These are the ways in which the depraved mind manifests itself. But Paul says that's not all. And that's not even the worst of it, Paul would say. 
There's another way, the ultimate way, in which the depraved mind manifests itself, and he says that it is in the approval of other people's sins. Look at verse 32. The second way in which a depraved mind manifests itself is when you approve of other people's sins. Verse 32, he says, and. And at this point, you you almost want to say, really, Paul? How much worse can this possibly get? What more do you have to say? And although, or even though, they know the ordinance of God, or the righteous judgment of God, or the decree of God. What decree? What judgment? He tells us that those who practice such things, those who live this way habitually, are worthy of death. They deserve to die, and they know it. And this word, death, doesn't refer to physical death. It refers to spiritual death. They know they deserve hell. And even though they know that, he says, they not only do the same, but also, on top of that, give hearty approval to those who practice them. They amen other people's sins. Notice here that again and again, Paul says people know. They're not ignorant. And the Greek verb here to know emphasizes that they know. It's certainly. It's certain. Without a doubt. Creation reveals to the lost not only that God exists, Not only that he deserves praise and honor and thanksgiving, and therefore they are without excuse, but Paul says here, creation also reveals to them that they're guilty and deserve to die. The ungodly know the first half of Romans 6.23 without having Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. And we ask the question, well, how can people look at creation and know that they deserve to die for their sins? And I think part of it is that the conscience comes into play here that Paul will talk about in Romans 2. Creation and conscience are both part of natural or general revelation. But to give you an example I heard, it's pretty obvious that even unbelievers will acknowledge that there are some crimes for which people deserve to die. Even unbelievers will acknowledge that. And, And when missionaries have gone to tribes who were cut off from the world without the Bible, without anything, what do they find? They have the death penalty as well. Why? General revelation. That we understand crimes deserve punishment. You don't need the Bible for that. Although, in the face of God, before God, he says all of these sins deserve hell. Not just the big sins. But even lying and being disobedient to parents. And so let's understand here what Romans 1 is teaching us. This is very important. 
that the innocent, keyword, the innocent indigenous man in the middle of a jungle, cut off from the world, never heard the Bible, never heard the gospel, never had special revelation, that man does not exist. Paul is saying, all human beings, whether they have special revelation or not, they are guilty of sin, they deserve to die, and they know it. The man in the middle of the jungle does not exist who is innocent, does not exist. And what the Bible teaches us is that God does not judge people for what they don't know, for what they have not heard, the gospel. God judges people for what they do know and reject. For the revelation they do receive and turn away from. This is why we send missionaries. Because there are no innocent people in this world. They are without excuse. And even though they know this, does it lead them to seek for God? Does it lead them to repentance or to pump the brakes on their sins? No, Paul says they actually push down on the gas pedal. They give hearty approval to those who practice them. People not content with their own sin and their own depravity cheer other people on in theirs. Two thumbs up. Five-star review. Way to go. It's interesting in Acts 8.1. In Acts 8, what, what time is it? I think that clock is wrong. Batteries are dead? Okay, good. I was like, man, I'm going long. Okay, I'm good. In Acts 8.1, <clears throat> this is how Paul is described when Stephen was getting stoned in front of him. Acts 8.1, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And then later in Acts 22.20, after he became a Christian, Paul describes himself in the same way. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, he says to God, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. This is why you can't go to a transgender wedding. Because all those people there are approving and celebrating and amening what's happened. They're not there because they're angry, but because they are happy for these people and celebrating it, approving heartily of these two individuals as they go to hell. As if, as if these two individuals who are getting married are on a boat and humanity is on each side of the river clapping as they are about to fall into their destruction. This is why it doesn't matter if you are not transgender, if you are not homosexual, if you approve of that, Paul says right here, you're guilty of the same thing, if not worse. That's what the Bible says. So the progression we see in Romans 1.18-32, corrupt worship, Idolatry leads to corrupt thinking, leads to corrupt living. 
ungodliness leads to unrighteousness. This is the fallen condition due to sin. And so saints, we should never again say this or ask this question. Never again. I can't believe that person could do such a thing. I can't believe that man could leave his wife and and five kids. I can't believe that man could enter into an elementary school and shoot 21 children when he doesn't have a criminal record. I can't believe it. Now we can. Paul says that is what man is. And eventually, it's going to manifest itself in some way, shape, or form. This is how evil men is. Do we believe that? They're not, they're not just a little evil. They're full of unrighteousness. John Calvin said, We are so entirely controlled by the power of sin that the whole mind... The whole heart and all our actions are under its influence. In other words, the doctrine that Romans 1 and 2 gives us is the doctrine of total depravity. That man is totally depraved. We need to understand and know this doctrine. That total depravity does not mean that man is as evil as he could be. Not everyone goes to the level of a Hitler. And total depravity does not teach us that even atheists can do nice, can't do nice things for other people. Cut someone's lawn, save someone's life, bring someone a meal. Even unbelievers can do those things. But what total depravity teaches us is that in the eyes of God, no one is good. And no one is worthy of life. Everyone is worthy of death. And it teaches us that if man is left in this condition, he cannot turn to God of his own free will. Neither does he want to. Neither does he want to. If you flip the page... Paul says this in Romans 3.10-12. This is how he will conclude. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Not even the Pope. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Not one. And so by by way of application, for us as Christians, how do we take this text? What do we do with it? Well, let me give you some points. Number one, we need to understand humanity is helpless in itself. We need to be convinced that we cannot reason people into the kingdom of God. We cannot manipulate people to walk forward and pray some prayer and accept Jesus into their hearts because that's not found in the Bible. We we cannot persuade intellectually people to accept Jesus and to manipulate them. That will not work. They cannot be persuaded 
but they can be made alive. They can be made alive. In Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. Ephesians 2, 4 to 5. Well, in verse 1, he begins, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Not sick. Not injured. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then in verses 4 to 5, he says, By God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That is the only hope people have in their lost condition. And so, what does this mean for us? It doesn't mean let go and let God. God is not only a God of ends, but a God of means. And the Bible tells us that the means by which God brings people to salvation is the preaching of the gospel. This is how God gives regeneration according to 1 Peter 1.23 and James 1.18. And so what do we do with people? We don't try to convince them. We share the gospel with them. Because they're dead. And only God can make them alive. And number two, what do we do? We pray. We pray. We pray. God, take the word from the mind to the heart. Only God can take the word from the mind to the heart. The pastor or anyone else can only get it to the mind. Steve Lawson once said that people miss heaven by 18 inches. The distance from the mind to the heart. People need a new heart. And only God can do that. Only God can do that. And so we, we evangelize and we pray. That is God's means of salvation. Of getting the gospel across. We evangelize and we pray. Not gimmicks. But then for us, personally, rejoice. We are on the other side of Romans 1. Those who have believed in Christ. We are on the other side of the cross. You're forgiven of all these sins. You're washed. You're sanctified. You're justified. And so don't read this as a Christian in condemnation. Realize you have been forgiven. Now if you see some of these sins and you fall into some of them, fine, use the list to convict you and to lead you to repentance. But not condemnation, because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then if you're here this morning, or listening online, I want to remind you, you're dead in sin and you know it. And you know you deserve to die. But God does not leave people there. If that's all we had, let's just all go home. God doesn't leave people there. Because He sent His Son, the only one who was worthy of living and life, to die on the cross in the place of sinners and to bear the wrath of God for them. To pay for all of it. He said on the cross, it is finished, not mostly done. And if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, God promises you salvation, forgiveness, eternal life as a free gift by grace. And by faith in Christ, 
You're now reconciled to God and your mind is renewed and you are empowered now to live a holy life. Not to be saved, but because you have been saved. The gospel of grace is the only hope people have. Not religion. Not works. Jesus said, whoever comes to me in faith, I will in no way, no wise cast out. Won't turn you away. He will receive you. He will forgive you. And you'll be adopted into the family of God. A lot of people say, don't preach Romans 1 if you want people to get saved. But let me tell you what. God uses Romans 1 to save people. Almost 12 years ago, I walked into the back of a church, maybe half drunk, and a preacher read Romans 1. And as he read this list of sins, and that he gave them over, it cut me to the heart. And I realized my need for Christ because of Romans 1. And in that moment, I placed my faith in Christ. In that moment, I walked out of that church forgiven, for good, and now empowered to to live a life that is pleasing to Him as an act of gratitude for God. And if you talk to Martin Luther, he would tell you the same thing. He was converted by reading Romans 1, 16 and 17 as you realize that the righteousness of God, the perfect life of God is given to a person as a gift when they believe in Christ. And that's what God promises you this morning if you have not trusted in Jesus. Because He's also a gracious and merciful God. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your truth. Even, even difficult texts such as this that make us uncomfortable, that convict us in all the ways in which we fall short. And as we see that even as Christians, we often stumble into some of these sins in our lives. But we know that We are new creatures in Christ. We believe we have been fully justified, declared righteous before you as your people. But we also know there may be some among us who have not believed in Jesus, in him who came and lived, died, and rose again. So we ask that this would be the day they believe and trust in Him. And it's in His name we ask and pray these things.